Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Good afternoon. Welcome to the weekly edition of The Wrap. I'm Laura Leslie, WRL Capital Bureau Chief. And I'm WRL State Government Reporter, Travis Fain. And lawmakers were out of the gates with a sh- like a shot this week. Um, yeah, banger of a week. Yeah, a couple, couple big bills moving, one in the Senate, one in the House. The Senate was the... Um, the bill, the the parents, parental bill of rights, parents bill of rights. Sorry, uh, does a variety of things. We've talked about that before. Um, it did pass on party lines as we expected it to. Um, there was a, as I think you had pointed out, an especially moving speech from um, a new senator from Wake County, Lisa Grafstein. Yeah, I thought an early contender for kind of the most moving speech of the session uh, moved zero votes because it was a party line vote. I, I thought maybe. I don't know. I always think maybe someone else's experience will resonate with someone and they'll oh, change their vote. For heaven's sake. I'm naive and foolish. Uh, she uh, grew up gay and said she remembered believing in the 1980s that there was something wrong with her and that a teacher made her feel better about just writing in her yearbook, Dare to be Different. So, I mean, we're talking about the connection students form with teachers that maybe they don't have with parents and how this bill endangers that. And I can say it's, you know, from experience as well. I mean, really, it's, and this is especially true for trans kids, but it's true for a lot of kids. You know, it's not unusual for a, a kid to go talk to a teacher first because that's not as high a stakes as your parents, right? Right. It gives you a chance to sort of talk through things and, you know, um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of concern that this bill would endanger that or make teachers afraid to have those conversations or kids afraid to have those conversations. So, you know, that is that is, you know, school is a big support for a lot of kids who are um, LGBTQ. So this, you know, it'll be I'll be interested to see how this bill ends up in the House. What we heard from House leadership this week is that they plan to probably do their own version of it. Mm. So we will probably see some type of a rewrite of this bill before um, we see it out on the House floor. So this is going to be one that we go back and forth on for a while, I Could guess, be. as opposed to speeding toward a veto and a veto override. Could be. Um, another one, another formerly vetoed bill showed up this week. And that would be the uh, the anti-rioting bill, although this is a slightly different version, version 2. Uh, this is Speaker Moore's bill that would um, increase a lot of the penalties for rioting. Um, it would also include, um, which has been really controversial, initially would have included a 48-hour cooling off hold. So if you were at a protest and, and a riot broke out and somebody thought you were involved in the riot, they could throw you in jail for 48 hours and a magistrate can't get you out. You can't bond out. You have to wait for a judge. Yeah, you have to wait for a judge. And, um, and you know, the idea was it's similar to domestic violence. Um, but, you know, again, the concern is, you know, how are police going to decide or know who the rioters are if you're in a – remember, like, we had the, the protests downtown after the, the murder of George Floyd, you know, and there were, you know, tens of thousands of people down there, um, and the vast majority of them were not rioting. But, you know, the concern is under bills like this, because they were there at the time, there's concern that they could be picked up and charged with felony rioting, especially if damage was done or someone was hurt. Yeah, how will police apply it? At the moment of crisis, you know, when when things are going down and this bill comes, you know, Tim Moore, Speaker of the House, he's got an apartment in downtown Raleigh uh, that at one point campaign donors were helping pay for. I don't know uh, who, who's paying the rent. That there. is allowed, though. It, it, it is or was at the time that they've tinkered with those rules anyway. And he so he's on his balcony watching 
uh, these riots and protests. uh, Smelling the tear gas, as he likes to point out. Unfold. And so basically it it defines rioting as three people that there's a clear danger, three or more people, of course. Imminent potential danger. Yeah, and that, that would be a class one misdemeanor. Class H felony is if you brandish a weapon or use a dangerous substance. The charges increase if there's more damage or if there's death. It also increases penalties for encouraging a riot. And I thought this was interesting. You mentioned the thing about uh, 24 hours. Basically, a judge has 24 hours right. before deciding what your conditions are. Yeah, they, of they lowered are. that to 24 hours in an amendment on the floor. That's right. So they basically, it's a 24 hour hold if they want to do it, if the authorities want to do it. But also, it sets up a right to sue. Three times damage. So if your building is uh, damaged in a riot and someone has been charged with rioting, I don't know exactly how you connect A to B there, but it, it does uh, open the door for, for greater civil penalties as well. And I thought, I mean, something interesting emerged during the House floor debate that I, I wasn't aware of, that some people's, some businesses, business insurance does not cover riots, hmm. civil unrest. So some of the folks whose businesses were damaged in the unrest uh, basically had very little means to to make themselves whole, you know. So this is meant to be not just punitive and you know sort of a you know dissuading people from doing it, but also to help businesses try to try to get repairs paid for. Um, you know, I don't know how much luck you're going to have suing too many folks who are rioters right. for a lot of money, but I mean, there it is in the law anyway. Yeah, and I mean, some of those businesses probably worth pointing out damaged more than once. Yeah, because you know we had the the big conflagration. But then there were all these little mini things where glasses, you know, plate glass windows are getting broken. I mean, that adds up. That is yeah. an expensive cost. And I don't know that downtown Raleigh, obviously the pandemic didn't help, but I don't know that it's fully recovered economically. But. No, I think some of that's the pandemic, too. But, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, the foot traffic is not there. It's coming back, but it's not there yet. Yeah, I saw this yeah. is not on our list, but I saw a, a Triangle Business Journal piece where uh, basically it's difficult to fill residential and not just residential but office space and retail space in downtown areas particularly raleigh and there were some percentages that were a little disturbing so yeah and another story of the week beth wood um emerged this week that she had used another state car i guess after the wreck uh, her wreck on december 8th um she did not come to the council of state i think you were there weren't you or matt matt tallham was right i mean it's been basically a a, a stakeout for but to get beth wood on camera because she's not answering questions about how she wrecked a state car on december 8th she didn't go to council of state which is the monthly she she attended remotely gee i wonder why i mean her office is a block away from where the meeting was it might have had something to do with the tv cameras that were waiting in the wings maybe well she did show up at a budget hearing uh, to present the auditor's budget request uh, this week and that was i think in front of general government um we learned that she does have a new spokesperson Catherine nagy i guess she was formerly with wake county, oh, sorry, county more county, county schools county. my apologies more county schools um, and we also learned this week that logs appear to indicate that she was driving a state car after she had been told not to. I, I'm not privy to every detail of that, and it sounds like there could be some debate about when when things were logged and who did who drove what. Yeah, but, what, what seems clear is she wrecked a, a state car on December 8th and then started driving another state car. Uh, the auditor's office has a number of them uh, assigned. And, I mean, one thing, I mean, look, we're trying to put two and two together because she won't talk to us, uh, but in late November – she was involved in an accident in, I assume, her personal vehicle. She was involved in an accident that was not her fault. That's why you haven't seen much reporting on it. But so it's possible that her personal vehicle was damaged. Then the state car gets damaged. And uh, Still, though, still, Travis, you know, if I wrecked a state car, I kind of don't think they would give me another one right Oh, away. look, if you or I wrecked a state car, it, or, I mean, look, we'd be gone. Yeah. Like, I mean, there, there are benefits to being elected statewide, but... Yeah. 
you know, the, the questions continue and, and will continue for, for the state auditor. And I also wonder, you know, when, when are other people going to get tired of answering Bethwood questions? And is that going to cause some pressure? I don't know. No indication that anything's changing. Also this week we saw um, a bill about hotels. And this is it's interesting. Basically, it has to do with the fact that in hotels, people who stay in hotels are kind of in this gray area, in long-term hotels, right? right. <coughs> Pardon me. So people were talking about a lot of low-income people who can't afford housing in Raleigh, which is increasingly common. Um, and so they're living in these hotels. And so the question is, at what point, like how much notice would the hotel have to give them before they could evict them? Is that more like a tenant landlord or is that like a, a, a contractual occupancy? And so there's a bill that passed the Senate trying to nail some of that down, although opponents said that it would have bad effects on on lower income people. And this is a bill that moved either last year or in 2021. I believe Governor Cooper vetoed it. Uh, And I think it comes out of Charlotte, at least. I I tend to hear Charlotte representatives and senators talking about it the most. Uh, But the idea is, you know, if someone's not paying their rent, they've been there a long time, or if they're breaking the law, hotel and motel owners will say, like, I'm having trouble getting them out, and I want this clarified so it's clear that they are a hotel customer and not an apartment renter. But as you said, I mean, there's some people with no other option. Yeah, and there there really are a lot of people, increasing number of people with no other options. So this is one of those things I think um, Senator Lowe said on the floor after uh, the debate that they're probably going to have to take a bigger look at this, you know, because it's, it's clearly a big gray area in the law. And, you know, a lot of hotel owners are, this is one of the things they've been concerned about. Yeah, yeah. Medicaid expansion. Uh, the House is, uh, we think, next week going to pass its bill. It again has been filed with what I think is, Close enough to a straight Medicaid expansion doesn't include the certificate of need hospital regulatory right, reforms. Right, it's just straight up, straight down expansion. And well, basically, it doesn't expand it. It says it'll expand it as long as the budget passes. Sure, yeah. Which I mean, I think that's that's got to be standard, right? Because you have to account for it in the budget. But I mean, the the bottom line is it doesn't include the regulatory reforms that the state senate is insisting on. And I believe you spoke to Senator Berger yesterday, Thursday. Yes. And he said, as he said many times, now nah, we ain't doing that. No. He said, this is not the bill North Carolina needs to expand Medicaid. Yeah. I, but, I mean, when you bring up the budget, that's interesting because that that means signals that this debate is going to go on for some time. Yeah. And I'm not going to give chapter and verse right now, but there are some deadlines, uh, particularly on HASP. That's Hospital Assistant Payments, which is kind of a separate pot of money, but has typically in these bills been tied up with Medicaid expansion. I, there's a there, a few months from now, I can't remember when it is, but some time runs out at the federal level on that money. It's a lot of money. The hospitals want it real bad. Are they going to have to do that separately? You know, at, at one point, I think it felt like, well, maybe they come into this session and as part of the budget, they very quickly move on Medicaid expansion. I don't know how quickly we're talking at this point. If it's tied up in the budget, it doesn't seem like it's going to be quick at all. Yeah, really. maybe not. Um, maybe not. Hopefully, they'll have a budget by July 1, though. Uh, well. Fingers crossed. That's the start of the state fiscal year. Yeah, well, that is uh, more honored in the breach, really, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I think they're going to get it done. Sorry. I, I, I think the bare minimum will be accomplished. Yeah, right. Uh, in the meantime, um, all right. So we have um, another bill that moved, uh, it was filed, and it's going to. It did move this week, and it's going to be in committee again on Tuesday. That would make the uh, the state board of education elected by the people. So it would make a bunch of changes. It would expand the board because it would um, have the same number of members as Congress, as there are congressional districts. Um, elected from districts, one would assume the congressional districts. Yeah. 
Um, and then um, whatever those end up being, <clears throat> whatever those end up being, right? Because we're going to redraw those apparently. Um, and so, and and then um, they would only serve four year terms. Yeah, and, and I mean, right now these are mostly gubernatorial appointments, and they're right? eight they're eight year terms, so they yeah. they they last beyond governors on a pretty regular basis. So this would be four year terms, and um, the state uh, the, the superintendent of public instruction would be the the chair of the board. And that would that would go a long way toward removing this like really long conflict that we've seen between the the superintendent of DPI and then the board because you know the superintendent is the executive elected but the board kind of controls pretty much everything except that. Yeah, and they don't always agree. Obviously, and oh. this was really a bigger problem under the previous superintendent, Mark Johnson. He was just constantly fighting with the state board of education. Uh, Kathy Truitt seems to to have a better relationship, at least publicly, with the board. But yeah, And this would all have to go... I was going to say, it goes back further than that, because I remember when Purdue um, was in office, she appointed a CEO, uh, <laughs> because it, just basically to get around June Atkinson at the time. So, And that was... Democrat. And they're both Democrats. They're both Democrats, right? Yeah, so this this is a long-time power struggle. So, I mean, you could, you could make that argument. But anyway, that bill's going to be heard in committee on Tuesday, if it were, it would need one Democratic vote to get through the House. I, I did not see any Democrats as primary sponsors. That doesn't mean none would vote for it. Um, and if it were to get through, um, it would be on the ballot in November 24. And if it were to pass, it would take effect in 26. All right. Quickly, I'll mention that Governor Cooper was in D.C. for much of this week. Uh, he, uh, The National Governors Association is meeting as we speak now here on Friday. I think they're probably hanging out at the White House with uh, the, the president and the, the, their various meetings, as there always are. I'm going to go out on a limb and say there are some fundraisers, although I don't know of any specific. Feel free to ring us up if you do. Uh, the governor also did an interview with Politico, another with the Center for American Progress. I, I didn't hear anything that I, I had not heard before that careful listeners will have not heard before. What do you think is going on here? I, you know, I mean, it's always the National Government Association meeting, but I'm sure everybody's jockeying for everything. Well, I'm just saying, I mean, you know, he wasn't that he wasn't that out front for the first four years of his administration. Right. Um, and it just seems like he's spending a lot of time more in D.C. than we at least than we were aware of, I guess. Well, true. Term. But you got to remember, there was also a pandemic, you know, that, that he had to okay, deal with. He, he became head of the Democratic Governors Association. So that boosted his his. Uh, and I mean, he seems yeah. to have captured national media attention as a Democratic governor in a pink state. Um, and I don't know how much that accounts for the fact that he ran against Dan Forrest, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest last time, who did not make a very strong showing as governor. But I mean, anyway, I mean, it, it, is, it is Roy Cooper's time in the spotlight nationally in some ways. Uh, continues to express, by the way, very strong support for uh, Joe Biden. Uh, among the things that he's saying in the, this round of interviews, that he would, you know, of course, hold the line on abortion because we're one of the few southeastern, or maybe the only southeastern state. Anyway, we're we're, we're a destination uh, at this point for abortion. Uh, wants the president uh, to work with governors to focus on spending infrastructure money that has already passed. Basically, saying, look, you might not be able to get much through the Republican House, but you already passed a whole bunch of stuff, billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. Let's spend that well on generational change, climate change, electric electric vehicles, all, all the stuff that North Carolina, right. that Roy Cooper wants. Um, well, you know, the one thing I thought was interesting is his comments about redistricting. Yeah. That he would support, if the Democrats come back into power, 
that he would support redistricting. Now, we always hear that, right? right. And we always hear it from lawmakers. Oh, yeah, I would say the same thing if I were in the majority and drawing the maps. And of course, that's never the case. Right. Uh, right. But it is interesting that, he, you know, his point was just that, and this is the same point that a lot of the critics of the legislature have made, that, you know, the tech, it's different now than it was because the technology has gotten so precise yeah. that it's too easy to manipulate electoral outcomes. Yeah, and I mean, look, when, when are Democrats going to be back in power at the North Carolina General Assembly? That's a good question. I imagine yeah. they're trying to figure that out this weekend at the, the they've got their convention, right, their conference. State Democrats, yep. Yep, trying to pick out. Um, we had our colleague, Paul Spey, had a really great story about that, about the power struggle. And Bobby Richardson, who's the current chair, and then Anderson Clayton, I think, is the sort of the, the, the lead opponent. But there are several, apparently. Yeah, she's the young kind of up-and-comer and has, has garnered the most attention. And, I, you know, I— the governor, Josh Stein, and the attorney general who's running for governor, they support the status quo. Bobby Richardson is chair. But, I mean, I'm seeing a lot online about I, I, this could be a closer race than, than you would normally think when the governor's endorsed someone. Although, you know, look, bet against Roy Cooper at your own, at your own peril, I think. <clears throat> well, you know. Um, another really great piece that was written by another one of our colleagues, Will Doran. Welcome, Will. So happy to have you. Uh, bill that, a bill that would increase the judicial retirement age from 72 to 76. Now, as you might guess, this might possibly be aimed at uh, Chief Supreme Court Chief Justice Paul Newby, who is going to have to retire in about f- four years, I guess. Yeah, kind of shortly before his term would otherwise be up. Yeah. So, uh, this yeah. is a hedge against in case a Democrat wins the governor's race in 2024, because if someone has to retire from the state Supreme Court, then the, the governor gets to appoint, uh, in this case, the chief justice, decide who the next chief justice is. As Will also pointed out, um, you know, one of the things that it would do is is cut down the number of judicial appointments the governor gets, period. Because if you, a lot of the people who are retiring, they're retiring because they've reached the mandatory age. So um, a lot of the, the openings that Cooper would otherwise appoint might not be available to Yeah, Cooper. at superior court, district court level. Yep, yep. Speaking of lawyering and whatnot, uh, the strange, long uh, fight between Josh Stein and Lauren Freeman, Wake County's district attorney, seems to be over. Uh, everybody might remember that Josh Stein in his, what even year election was it, Laura, that that commercial ran? Gosh, I don't know. Was it was 2020? It, uh, let's just say it was. It ran a commercial that accused his opponent, Jim O'Neill, a Forsyth County Republican <laughs> district attorney, of something. I don't even remember what it was. Anyway, it wasn't true. It, it, oh, it was allegedly not true. Okay. I'm not. I'm Whatever. Not, we're not. We're gonna. I'm not doing live talk that. Right. Okay. Fine. Here. But anyway, yeah. We the 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 truthiness of it was unclear. And there so, you go. Um, so O'Neill sued uh, Stein using an older law that basically said politicians are not allowed to say false things about. Yeah, it's other actually illegal to lie if you're a politician. Which is hilarious to me. Hilarious. I mean, I don't. None of these guys would be here. But so anyway. So they went. So so Lauren Freeman took the case up, and it's been a, a matter of a lot of speculation for, for the last few months. You know, because she is a Democrat, he's a Democrat. Um, so she, you know, a, a, a judge, I guess, further down the chain, had found that she, she would have a pretty good chance of winning. That what he said, you know, was was illegal. But then the Fourth Circuit kind of smacked her down. Well, yeah, Stein yeah. filed a federal lawsuit and said yeah. this law is unconstitutional. The Fourth Circuit said, yeah, it almost certainly is. And Freeman stopped prosecution. So right. that all happened this week. This has been going on for years at this point. It's just it's just very very interesting. Speaking of inter democratic dynamics, but yep. 
Yep. Uh, we wrote a little bit about school threats. This has been a rough week and a half or so uh, in schools. There have been a lot of student threats. Uh, a kid got shot and killed outside of a high school in Durham on the American Tobacco Trail there. Uh, Hillside, I believe, is yeah. the name of the school. And and so it just it, it's almost like a merry-go-round. We, we come back around to this issue of school safety. Uh, obviously, you and I don't expect any gun legislation to pass, nothing at least restricting guns. Yeah, I was going to say, pass. I think we'll see some gun legislation pass, but it won't be restrictive. Yeah, it, it, but I think you will see legislation that boosts funding for school safety. What that ends up looking like, it's hard to say. Uh, Senator Amy Gailey out of Alamance County, she said she wants to see more school resource officers. The the research is a little iffy on how much having it's a, very iffy. a police officer in a school helps, but it is something that... I think resonates with parents because they can see it. Uh, Durham's sheriff called for metal detectors in every school. That obviously would be expensive. That's something the state may discuss. Uh, Phil Berger saying, uh, yeah, you can expect more money, but we don't know what that's going to look like. There also could be a push to have the state track threats statewide. Uh, there's been some reporting. I can't believe we don't. Yeah, we, it, it just doesn't seem to be as formalized as you might expect it to be. Well, gathered, I mean, it's probably by school district, not by county, but it seems like one of those things one would want to be keeping track of. You know? Yeah, you're going to have to come up with some definition of, because, of, of, I mean, there's a lot of different levels of a threat when sure. you're talking about kids. Sure, absolutely. You're right. Um, so um, I was t- so how that money gets to schools is it goes through the Center for Safer Schools. And last year, lawmakers put aside, I think, $74 million. So I talked to Karen Fairley yesterday, who is the head of the center, and she said um, they had over 200 applications for that money because they've got 115 school districts and 200 some charter schools. Um, and so she said um, they were able – they couldn't give everybody everything they wanted, but they were able to give everybody something that they wanted – it sounds like, given the number of applications and the amount asked for, what they needed was closer to 100 than 74. But it, at least it wasn't double or triple. Right. So, you know, so at least they were in the ballpark. So it'll be interesting to see if they make up that gap this year. All right. I'm going to try to speed through a few things here. Kathy Truitt, a superintendent of public instruction at Council of State, this week noted the incredible decline, her words, in enrollment and teacher preparation programs. I think we've talked before about the concerning uh, lack of people going through those programs and whether or not that's going to be a big deal in the future. Uh, as a teacher shortage, uh, the governor piped in, said the key is to, you know full funding, better salaries. Sure. True response, absolutely. We need to be more competitive in our region on teacher salary. I just think that's an interesting, not that anybody is vocally saying, no, we don't need to pay teachers more money. Oh, I don't know. Pretty close. <laughs> But I, the, money I, won't solve it, Travis. The the that's a good point. The agreement between Truett and and, and Cooper, I think, is something it worth is. watching. Also at Council of State, Steve Troxler, Ag Commissioner, said for the first time ever in North Carolina, we have produced 400 bushels of corn per acre. Apparently, this is a big deal threshold. We're the third state in the nation to do it. Uh, obviously, most corn is in the Midwest. And a guy named Russell Hedrick was the first farmer to hit this corn target, and he got a quote. Bounty? What's a bounty? From Steve Troxler, a payment, some sort of uh, cool. financial award for it. Uh, wheat and soybean yields are also uh, up. So productivity in our state's farms has increased. Very interesting. Uh, we're lots and lots of little things to mention. Looks like Tom Murray is going to be running for attorney general. Um, that I don't know that we, we know that Ray Starling, we mentioned last week, is thinking about it too. Yeah. We don't know about other folks. I mean, there's a couple other former contenders that could be in that race. O'Neill, Newton. Uh, don't know at this point who's who's going to jump on that one. Uh, also, Richard Burr got a new job at uh, DLA Piper International Law Firm as a policy advisor. His focus on healthcare. 
got a, a team that he's bringing over from his former staff in the Senate. Good for him. Nice to see that guy get a win. <laughs> uh, also, the Supreme Court, State Supreme Court, are going to rehear those uh, voter ID and redistricting cases March 14th and 15th. You might remember this was pretty controversial when they agreed to do this at the request of lawmakers. But here we go. So that's going to be coming up in about a month and a week. Uh, and also, you, you, this was interesting. You pointed this out that Moore v. Harper may actually be a moot point. Yeah, that's the Supreme Court case on how much uh, the courts can, state courts can step in and stop state legislatures on redistricting. And this is from some national reporting. I saw an NPR piece. I saw a couple of other pieces. So someone is, is talking about this in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. basically because the North Carolina Supreme Court, as you just mentioned, is retaking the redistricting case. That's the same case. So that could be the off-ramp that the United States Supreme Court wants if it doesn't want to get into all this and say, you know, once and for all how much a state judiciary has power over this issue. They could just say, oh, well, North Carolina solved it, so we'll, maybe we'll come back to it at another time. We'll, well see. Well, wait a minute, though. If they, were, if they were to find that the other Supreme Court didn't have power over it, why would this one have power over it? Well, they would, the, the United States Supreme Court would just wait, would just make no decision wait for the North Carolina Supreme Court to do its thing and then say, all right, well, now it's no longer relevant. So we're not, I mean, it's just a possibility. Then I'm just pointing out the irony there. Um, and then let's see what else. Um, you did uh, on the record this week looking at the state's child care shortage. Yes. It's, pre- it's pretty dire. It's, it, it's a situation and, and it's having economy-wide impacts where not only if you're a parent are you struggling to find child care for your kid, maybe you're leaving the workforce because of that. And maybe that's why you're standing in line at... McDonald's or wherever you're, you're you're feeling like, hey, I'm not getting the customer service and the help I need. Well, a lot of it is because the workforce is shrunk, and a lot of that is because of how we do childcare and how expensive it is. 7 p.m. That's an unusual time. 7 p.m. Saturday, and it'll be available online afterward uh, on the record here on WRL. How much of that childcare deficit was due to closures during COVID? Well, I mean, some things, like everything else, just don't recover, right? But the federal government put a ton of money. I think in North Carolina, it was like $1.3 billion toward this system. Trying to keep it open. Yeah, to keep it open and and giving teachers extra money. But you had a lot of people who just threw their hands up during COVID and were like, you know what, I can go get a different job. I don't want to be around a bunch of kids who may or may not get sick. Mm. And they leave. And then everybody else who's left. Well, I mean, burnout time right now, right? Right. And so it, it, it is a real struggle. We get deep on the issue, and I think we had a really, really good panel. So 7 p.m. Uh-huh. Saturday. All right. Um, a couple things we're expecting next week. Um, the revenue projections next week, also um, the Medicaid and House rules. We're hearing there may be some movement on um, what Speaker Moore wanted to do with the veto. Yeah, so I, I, I've we don't read know some, what it is. We don't know what it is. I've read <laughs> some coverage where he said, uh, yeah, we're talking to Democrats about that. So look for, but anyway, the, the House will set its permanent rules next week, whatever they are. Revenue forecast coming next week also, uh, according to Phil Berger. Yep. He told you that, I believe. Yep. Governor says his budget will be ready pretty soon. And when I say his budget, his budget proposal right. that I'm sure the Republican Party uh, is waiting to read. Oh, yeah. And they're working on a date for state of the state, the governor said as well. Mark Robinson, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, will speak at CPAC. That's March first uh, through fourth. And oh, Phil Berger said was asked what's next on the agenda for the state senate. He said uh, you are going to see more bills that you've seen before. So I mean, again, things that have passed before one chamber, not the other, or the governor vetoed. They're bringing them back. That's going to be the beginning of the session here. And he said that he knows Bill Raven, the rules chair in the Senate, wants his marijuana bill moved. So expect that to move very soon. Hmm. All right. Something to keep, something to look forward to next week. Yep. That's all I've got. That's all I've got. So 
Thank you very much for joining us for this week's edition of The Wrap, and we hope you'll tune in next time.